Thank you for downloading the Aging Matters podcast. To find out more about how Transitions Life Care is providing care and comfort for life's changing needs, visit transitionslifecare.org. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. 60 minutes devoted to giving you all the information you need when caring for a loved one with Nicole Cleggett and Jason Kong. Welcome to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. Good Saturday evening to you. Jason Kong here with... Nicole Cleggett, representing Transitions Life Care and Transitions Guiding Lights. Nicole, how are you today? I'm glad to be taking off my galoshes. Well, yeah, it's been, uh, boy, a rainy, gloomy week, hasn't it been? It sure has. It sure doesn't help when we all have to be quarantined. So. No, it doesn't, <laughs> especially when you have a couple little toddlers in the house. <laughs> outside is kind of your, uh, your outlet? saving grace. <laughs> oh. but, uh, You're you looking know. a little gray, Jason. That's okay. <laughs> you know, it's been happening for a while now. We'll power through. Well, Nicole, let's... let's Let's get down to business here, and we'll get to our first guest of the evening, and that is David Wilson, who is a family caregiver and also project coordinator of the Johnston County Alzheimer's Project, and we're going to talk a little bit about his caregiving journey and some other things going on. David, thank you so much for joining us on the program this evening. Well, thank you for having me. So uh, it's not very often that we get to have um, somebody on the show that is a current family caregiver. And so we really appreciate you taking the time out today to talk with us sort of about the caregiving journey that you are on with your loved one and some of the um, trials and tribulations that you've experienced as well as some of the successes. So we appreciate your vulnerability in being here today and really connecting with our listeners. Well, I'm, I'm glad to do it. I hope I can help someone. Sure. So talk to us a little bit about um, what's going on with you in your life. Well, this has, been, this has been a journey probably around eight or nine years now. My wife, Judith, we've just, we just had our 30th wedding anniversary. Happy anniversary. Uh, well, thank you. Uh, unfortunately, I wasn't able to share it with her, but uh, because she's currently in a nursing home right now, and they're in lockdown. Uh, but she used to be a real estate paralegal here in Johnston County. She was uh, one of the best. Uh, she was very professional, very thorough, very meticulous in her work. She used to teach real estate uh, paralegal technology over at Johnston Community College. Um, so she she had an ex- excellent reputation, and she was just she was really good at what she did. And then something and changed. She was. What's that? Did something change in her life, or kind of what brought her oh, to? Oh yeah, yeah. She um, uh, was working for an attorney part time, and he had said he had to let her go because he didn't have the volume of work uh, to justify keeping her on. Uh, but that wasn't actually um, what was really what was really happening. He had to let her go because she started missing some things. And he was, you know, he was being nice about it. And, you know, so that's that's how he handled it. 
Um, but what was really happening was, and we didn't know it at the time, uh, that she was starting some missing some some things when she was doing her title searches. And then you did you start to experience some things at home that kind of made you wonder might something be going on? Yeah, um, we noticed some red flags, um, uh, like um, she would ask questions. That's I think one of the main things that people notice is when people ask questions over and over again. And um, uh, that was one of the things. And so some red flags came up. We started to do some uh, looking into this um, and uh, come to find out that, um, and I don't know if she was, if she was actually diagnosed because of her age, she was so young. Uh, at the time, she was, we think, maybe could have been as early as when she was 49. Wow. Um, but her mother had Alzheimer's, and her grandmother had Alzheimer's. And a lot of uh, scientists and people in the medical profession think that a lot of it is uh, linked to heredity. Yeah, there's there's a lot of kind of questions about about that. You know, not a hundred percent yes on on that on that point, but definitely um, there there are certain types, especially some of the younger onset Alzheimer's that. Uh, look like they may be linked in, in such a way. And we always like to, you know, encourage our listeners, you know, there are a lot of websites out there that, um, you know, anybody can put up anything that they want. So we always encourage folks, you know, when you're when you're facing a diagnosis of an Alzheimer's or, or a dementia of, of any sort, that you really try to find reliable sources online for your information, places like the Mayo Clinic or um, the Alzheimer's Association. There are a lot of um, vetted uh, studies and things of that nature. Uh, you know, my, my son laughed at me one day and, and he said, you know, mom, I just saw something online that said, you know, X, Y, Z. And, and I said, okay, well, where did, where did you see that? And he told me and I said, honey, you, I could go online and it'll tell me that watermelons eat people. So, you know, <laughs> we all, we all got we all have yeah. to vet that. That's the problem with the World Wide Web because people can just put anything out there at any point. But um, yeah, so. Yeah, there is, there is a, there is a ton of information on there and you've got to sift through it to find out what is reliable exactly. and uh, what is just, what isn't. But I think what amazed me so much, one of the things, there's a lot of things that really shocked me about this disease going through um, the last seven or eight years as I'm going through this, is that out of all the people that I talked with, doctors, nurses, people at social services, uh, hospice nurses, social workers, they were all telling me the same thing, and that is that more and more people are getting this disease mm -hmm. and they're getting it at a, at a younger age. And that's concerning. Sure, sure is. So when you are kind of in a situation and, and you're younger and you're, you're you know, bo both of you are sounding like, you know, this isn't a situation where, you know, you have two people living together and they're both 85, that certainly really 
paints a different picture for what you were picturing as your golden years. And I'm sure there have been a lot of emotional challenges for both you and your wife as you've gone down this journey. And now it sounds like you're you're separated as well uh, physically, uh, especially now it's due to COVID. You can't even make a visit. So, what are some of the what are, what are some of the challenges that you've faced faced, and what are some of the coping mechanisms that you've kind of established to get through this? Well, a lot of the a lot of the challenges are, well, I think probably um, the big thing was is that I was totally unprepared for this. Mm-hmm. Um, just had no idea. I really didn't even know a whole lot about Alzheimer's. I thought Alzheimer's was just uh, where somebody, you know, walks into a room and they forget why they walked in there. Uh, or maybe they misplaced their car keys, but I, I didn't realize the magnitude of this disease. And it's not something that uh, anybody would understand unless they're actually going through it themselves. But I don't. I have never, have never gone through anything so excruciating. Uh, so gut-wrenching and devastating as this, it's just, well, I call it a nightmare. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what it is. To me, it's, I call it the nightmare that never ends. And that's the reason why we started the Alzheimer's Projects, because I don't want to see anybody else have to go through this, what I've been through. It's just, it's just terrible. Definitely. It definitely is a, a huge challenge. And, you know, at, at your ages, you know, it's, it's not really something that would have even been in your in your thought process, for sure. You know, even imagining that you might be facing such a life limiting and chronic disease that can go on as you've been going through this now for, you know, seven or eight years. You know, for some people, this can go on upwards of 20 years, especially if they don't have any other, you know, compounding uh, physical conditions. And so um, I think folks that are listening, should know that you know there are warning signs for for this disease. So things like um, what were what, the things that were going on with your wife in the office. You know, starting to miss some of those details, not being able to put thoughts together, kind of not being able to retrace steps. You know, we all you mentioned misplace your car keys. We all do that. My gosh, I mean, this morning coming into the radio show, I I, I forgot to bring my earphones, and so then I was like, oh no, and you know, I had to run down to my, but I knew they were in my car, and I was able to retrace my steps. So, you know, some of those things, some of those, they call them instrumental activities of daily living. Those are some of the things we start seeing in the beginning uh, where a person, um, you know, is just not able to balance their checkbook anymore or they pay a bill multiple times. So these are all things, a lot of times a hindsight is twenty twenty, and you can kind of paint that picture once you're sort of further along into the crisis for sure. So um, I, I, I think I, one, of, one, of the, one of the big things that really uh, – told me that something was wrong is my daughter had started going to high school and she wanted to try out for the color guard and the color guard was having the tryouts over at the middle school which she had just uh, graduated from so my wife was supposed to pick uh, our daughter Leanne up at um, 615 from the middle school and I had an appointment. So I got back probably, I got back home probably 10 minutes around quarter to seven or 10 minutes to seven. 
and my my wife pulls up and Leanne's not with her. Mm. And my wife gets out of the truck and she's just got tears streaming down her face and she's just totally distraught. And I said, where's Leanne? And my wife just in a face full of tears, she just says, I can't find the middle school. Mm, yeah. And I'm like, heartbreaking. wow. Heartbreaking for sure. We had, we had gone, to, you know, and picked our daughter up and dropped her off at the middle middle school hundreds of times the previous three years. And we even go by the middle school on the way to church on Sunday. So that was really just, a, I mean, that was just, it hit me in the face like a truck. For sure. So, well, we have to wind up our time already, believe it or not, but I'd love for you just to give some information about the Alzheimer's Project real briefly, if, and if those want to connect with you and find out more. Well, what we're trying to do in Johnston County is, and um, the Alzheimer's Project in a nutshell, is we are trying to get... Um, Trying to find out, right now I've been working with a good friend of mine. His name is Sanjay Das, and I believe Sanjay has been on your program. Um, but we are trying to determine what kind of resources that we've got in the county here. And by the way, this is just not limited to Johnson County either. This is, this is for all of North Carolina. But we are trying to get a grassroots coalition of people um, to develop an Alzheimer's and a dementia medical park that would include all kinds of resources for Alzheimer's and dementia. And so that is that is the um, that's the project that we're trying to get together here so we can help families uh, in North Carolina. Oh, that's great. That is ambitious. David Wilson, uh, if folks want to find more information about the project, how do they go about doing that? Uh, the best thing to do, I am on Facebook, um, and all they have to do is put in David Wilson, and the Alzheimer's Project will come up. We've got some statistics there um, from the Alzheimer's Association and... Um, um, we've got some information about what we're what we're currently doing with the project, um, and right now we're trying to get into the churches um, so we can um, talk with the people about Alzheimer's and and dementia and uh, what we're trying to do in the community to help people. But my number, if anybody even would like to call, is nine one nine. Six three one six five eight two. Excellent. And we are right here, twenty four seven, ready to help people any way that we can. That phone number again: nine one nine six three one. Six five eight two. He is David Wilson, a family caregiver and project coordinator for the Johnston County Alzheimer's Project. David, thank you so much for coming on and uh, and sharing your story with us. Uh, we really appreciate you taking the time and being so candid. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. 
Thank you so much. A quick break and back with more. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. Joined by Nicole Cleggett from Transitions Guiding Lights. Here's your host, Jason Kong. You are listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. Jason Kong here with Nicole Cleggett. And Nicole, we're switching topics here. And many people know of Medicare, Mm -hmm. but once you go beyond that and dive into exactly what all is entailed in Medicare, it gets really confusing. Uh, I feel like we've done a number of programs on Medicare, and I still get very confused and tripped up when it comes to knowing all the ins and outs. So we brought in someone to help us, and that is Kenneth Schaefer, and he is the owner of Schaefer Business Associates. Kenneth, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Thanks. Glad to be here. I'm so glad to have someone like you on the show. You know, I don't think this is a topic that we can ever talk about enough. And I think Medicare, it's a, its an amazing benefit uh, that is given to the citizens of the U.S. But I also think there's an awful lot of confusion and assumptions and myths about what Medicare is and what it covers. So I'm glad that you're going to sort of take us on a journey this evening and walk us along the road of, of Medicare. So, um, you know, I think that... Um, there are many, many possible scenarios with Medicare, and there are many parts, and this really is not a product where it's one size fits all. Yeah, Nicole, that's that's very true. Um, you know, a lot of people, I think, believe that Medicare is only for those who are, you know, 65, mm-hmm. and in many cases, there is a large number of people that are under 65. Those are folks that are maybe have been on disability for 24 months or more. Uh, I think actually the numbers are something like 17% in North Carolina are under 65, they're on Medicare, and 15% U.S. worldwide, and that's actually a center for, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services statistic. And then there's also people who wait until well past 65 because they're continuing to utilize employer coverage. And for those individuals, they may be starting at, you know, 66, 67. I had a gentleman recently that I worked with, and he was turning 80 and just starting Medicare. Wow. Wow, that's amazing. So, um, you know, let's talk a little bit about kind of that whole idea of a needs analysis when it comes to Medicare and and really, you know, how would you even go about figuring out what you need? Okay. Well, I think there's a few pieces to it. The first part is to understand the components of Medicare. So, for example, there's Part A, which is going to be hospitalization. Uh, that's typically a part that anyone who has worked at least 10 years in the U.S. system, if you will, they pay their FICA taxes, et cetera, and therefore they're entitled to uh, Part A with no, no charges. And then there's Part B, which is for doctor's visits and things like that. And that one does typically have a, a premium associated with it, and it can be based upon your income. In some cases, uh, your uh, premium may be greater than the standard. The standard, by the way, in 2020 is uh, $144.60. But if your income is uh, you know, quite a bit higher, then you may pay an adjusted rate on that. And if your income is substantially lower than the typical person's, you may actually qualify for assistance on paying that, that premium. And then that's the two major components that they call original Medicare. 
but they don't really cover everything. For example, they don't cover things like prescription drug coverage. So a person needs to get prescription drug coverage, you know, as a separate component. And then if they're looking for things like dental or vision or that type of thing, they're not covered as a part of original Medicare. There are ways to get them, but they're definitely not covered as a part of original Medicare. And so you have to understand what the pieces are first, and then you have to take really a look at what your own specific needs might be. Do you want those, you know, again, uh, dental or vision or something like that? Um, and are you prepared to pay a, pay a premium for them, or are you looking for a product that, you know, might include them as a part of it, uh, either premium-free or with a lower premium? So there's a number of different options, you know, whether it's what they call a Medicare Advantage plan, which is also sometimes called Part C, um, or whether it's through a Medicare supplement or sometimes nicknamed the Medigap plan. And I think the thing that's most important to understand is that for individuals that enroll in just Medicare's Part A and B and maybe even D, they tend to be relatively exposed because original Medicare has no cap to the maximum out of pocket. And so if you had a serious illness at some point in time, then you, if you only had Medicare Part A and Part B, you can be very, very exposed. And I've had clients who have come into me and said that they, you know, had thought they were going to be safe by taking just original Medicare, and uh, then they had something serious happen, and they ended up with tens and even hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt with it. So it's important to understand the various different pieces and how you can kind of fill some of those gaps. I think another assumption that people make, and it is so, so common, is that Medicare covers some of those long-term custodial needs that a lot of older adults have, things like, you know, long-term stays in nursing homes and assisted living communities and home care. And the reality of it is, is that is just not the case. Yeah, absolutely true. Um, There's a number of different components. Again, there's something called skilled nursing care, and a lot of people confuse that with a longer term, as you put it, custodial kind of care. And it's definitely not the same thing. The skilled nursing care runs for a maximum of 100 days. And even then, it tends to have pretty steep co-pays, again, if all you have is original Medicare. And so that, you know, that 100 days can run out pretty quickly. That's really meant for someone who's in more of a recovery mode, you know, maybe had a stroke or something like that. And my, my mother, for example, back a few years ago, thank goodness she's totally recovered now, but she had a stroke and she ended up being skilled nursing for about four weeks. And it covered, you know, fairly well for something like that. But if it was going to be an extended period, you're absolutely right. It does not cover any type of long-term care whatsoever. So you often hear about, and there's often a lot of news, you know, public service announcements and people talking on air about these open enrollment periods. What are those? (laughs) I think that's one of the biggest confusion points for a lot of people. There's a number of different opportunities to get enrolled in Medicare, but they all have very, very specific requirements associated with them. And so the most common one is something called annual enrollment period, AEP. And it's not the same as open enrollment period, by the way, but annual enrollment period runs from October 15th to December 7th. And it's a period of time that uh, recipients of Medicare can make changes to their Medicare coverage. They can make changes to their prescription drug plans and to what they call Medicare Advantage plans that um, that they may have. Medicare Advantage plans, again, are sometimes called Part C. Um, it's not the time that, for example, you could make changes to a Medigap or a Medicare supplement. Those can be done any time of the year as long as you make underwriting. So, again, there's that's probably the most common one, but there's other enrollment periods as well. There's also an open enrollment period, 
and the open enrollment period runs from I'm sorry, from January 1st to March 31st, and that's a new environment, a new uh, enrollment period that started in 2019. And what that one is designed to do is if someone made a choice for a Medicare Advantage plan and they decided, you know, the first month or two into the, their, their effective uh, date for that plan, that it was the wrong choice because there are a lot of things to consider. Then they have one opportunity to make one change to a like plan, to another, for example, Medicare Advantage plan. And then other ones, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of cut it off with this, but there's also what they call special enrollment periods. And these tend to be uh, scenarios where you've had a life situation take place. For example, you've moved from one service area to another. Uh, another one might be that you just qualified for something called extra help or low-income subsidy or even Medicaid, and there could be a special enrollment period with that. And, uh, and, and they can happen at multiple times during the year. So, for example, a uh, Medicaid recipient actually gets uh, one special uh, enrollment period per quarter uh, of the year. So there's a number of different enrollment periods. And so it really seems to me that, you know, without the support of somebody that really knows what they're doing, a lot of people just sort of go on autopilot and kind of just let what happens happens. I, I know that, you know, a lot of older adults, especially, you know, if they had an employer that had a p- specific plan, um, and then that is a plan that's offered during sort of the open enrollment program, they just st- stick with the insurance company they've always had because they make the assumption that it's always been great insurance. But the reality of it is, especially with some of these drug plans, that the formularies change from year to year. And what was great for you one year may not be great the next year. And you can really be stuck with a donut hole. That is so true. It's, it's critical, in my opinion, to review your, really your, your whole um, healthcare insurance environment each year, but especially for prescription drug coverage. I have actually seen scenarios where someone stuck with the same drug plan. They thought they were good. It got a little more expensive one year. It got a little more expensive the next year. And we'll do a review, and all of a sudden we realize that they can save, you know, in the course of a calendar year, and we see that on a regular basis because they hadn't really done their due diligence to really do that review. And so maybe I can give you a bit of a guide on some things to kind of keep in mind. What I like to encourage my clients to do is the following, is every year between the months of August and September, the prescription drug companies and their Medicare Advantage plan uh, companies, they're required to send out what they call an annual notice of change. And I find that so many times the seniors, they, they get all this mail. It is such a barrage of, of marketing campaigns that they just choose not to read it. So what I always encourage my clients to do is if, if you do nothing else, at least open the mail from the current carrier that you have. And that's going to come in the month, again, of, of August or September. It's what they call an annual notice of change. And in that annual notice of change, they will list any changes to the formulary, or any other changes to premiums, deductibles, things like that. And so what, you, what, they, what I ask my clients to do is to open that up, take a look at any changes, ask yourself, are any of the drugs that are listed here something that I take? And if they are, that should be a red flag that it's probably time to at least do a review. Now, if nothing's changed with respect to the drugs that you've taken and it's worked well for you that year, and the, you know, the uh, deductibles didn't change, the premium didn't change, you're probably okay letting it ride for another year. But, uh, but again, if there's been a change there, or for that matter, if you had a change in your prescriptions that year, 
and you found that they weren't being covered the way you wanted to be changed, that's another time that obviously it's, it's time to reach out to somebody that can help you kind of walk through the various different plans and find one that's going to work well for you. Kenneth, that's a great recommendation. If folks want to find more information about Schaefer Business Associates, how do they do that? Well, there's a few different ways, but probably the easiest is to give, a, give us a phone call on 919-378-1156, or they can go to our website, which is www.nextchaptersba, so that's next chapter like in a book, the letters S is in Sam, B is in boy, A is in apple.com. You can also find us on Facebook uh, with the same extension of Next Chapter SBA. Again, the website Next Chapter SBA. He is Kenneth Schaefer, owner of Schaefer Business Associates. Kenneth, thank you so much for taking some time to spend with us this evening. Great to be here. Thanks for allowing me to be here. A quick break and back with more. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF with Nicole Cleggett and Jason Kong. FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care. Jason Kong here with Nicole Cleggett. And Nicole, we're welcoming in a, a longtime friend of the program. He's been on the show many times as we're going to have a conversation about hospice care. And to do that, we've brought in Mark Philbrick. He's the Director of Education at Transitions Life Care. Mark, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. It's good to be back. So glad to have you here today, Mark. I so appreciate working with you and just the spirit of which you um, provide education to folks in the community. I think it's just a beautiful thing. So thank you for being you. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about something that I think, um, you know, throughout the entire country, we really have, generally speaking, a nursing shortage. And I think a lot of times when people are going to school to become a nurse, and gosh, this area has many, many schools of nursing, um, a lot of time is really not spent on hospice care. And, and a lot of people, when they think about becoming a nurse, think about, you know, working in the OR or, or things of that nature, or maybe in a doctor's office. But I don't think people give a lot of thought to sort of the role of nursing in um, end-of-life care and really what some of the rewards are in, in, in going into this field as a career. So I thought, you know, you could potentially shed some light on that and, and, and talk to us a little bit about some of the myths and myth, misconceptions related to hospice nursing. Yeah, absolutely. I think that is um, really important. I um, Even in my own career path, in June it will be 45 years I've celebrated being a registered nurse and like many nurses I just started my nursing career in working in a hospital mm -hmm. when I was 20 years old and I did do operating room nursing mm -hmm. and psychiatric nursing and other career paths and it wasn't until 30 years into my nursing career that I discovered or better hospice discovered me when um, my dad and my brother both got cancer at the same time and I needed the services in my own family. So there are approximately 2.8 million nurses in the United States, and less than 5% of those uh, work in the area of home health and hospice. So um, it is a, a big specialty, mm -hmm. 
about 1.4 million people a year die in our country um, in hospice. And so there's a big need for this. And it is not typically, or didn't used to be typically part of a nursing curriculum. Um, I serve as adjunct faculty at the School of Nursing at UNC Chapel Hill. And every semester now I do do lectures on end of life. So they have incorporated some of this into nursing school and we actually do have nursing students six a semester come and rotate through our hospice facility to get a better understanding of what hospice is all about. And uh, more and more nurses in school, as they understand this, see this as a viable specialty um, in their future. So what do you think some of the misgivings are about entering this as a career? Is it viewed as, you know, just you're less than a nurse if you're in hospice nursing or I mean why do you think you know folks generally shy away from doing this at the beginning of their careers well I think a lot of folks when initially asked what they think when they think about hospice they think oh my gosh that must be so sad and depressing Hmm. working with people who die all the time Um, and the reality is that we are working with patients and families at an incredibly important part of their life journey. Mm-hmm. And there's much joy and happiness and fulfillment in it. I think another misconception is that uh, some people conceive of a hospice nurse as like Florence Nightingale sitting at the bedside holding a hand weeping next to a patient who's dying. Mm-hmm. And that's so far from the truth. It is very interactive, it's very demanding, it takes the full scope of nursing knowledge and experience. And I think the other uh, misconception is that um, a lot of nurses think that other aspects of nursing early in their career are much more challenging as far as going into like emergency nursing or intensive care nursing. Um, And many of the people that we recruit into hospice are those nurses who've experienced death not done well in hospitals and find hospice is a a really rewarding experience to help families make this end-of-life journey the best it can be. So what do you find that some of the challenges are for a hospice nurse, Um, you know, for for people even just entering it, you know, when people are sort of switching gears, what are some of the things that folks maybe get surprised about? Um, I think the challenges is that hospice nursing requires the full range of the skills that you're trained as a nurse. Mm -hmm. The physical care of patients, because the patients we work with are extremely complex. Very few people just die of one thing. They have multiple uh, system failures going on. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's many medications, but then the emotional challenges of dealing with families in distress, um, helping navigate the fear of the unknown with these families. So it is really challenging Uh, to really use uh, the full set of skills you have. Um, Also, working at people at end of life, we see that it brings out the best in some families and the worst in others. So walking into a situation, the nurses have to be prepared emotionally to Mm -hmm. deal with the emotions that are coming at them. Um, Because rarely is a family prepared for the death of a loved one. Mm. Even if the person has been suffering for years, they're still not ready. The other challenge that we face is about a third of the patients a hospice nurse 
cares for will be dead in less than a week and a third less than a month. So there's much that has to be done, both physically, emotionally, spiritually, in a very short period of time. And the paperwork and so side of it all, it too. A lot of paperwork. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's, um, it's challenging in many ways, but it is also incredibly rewarding in others. And I think, you know, for those who aren't working necessarily, because there are very few inpatient hospice homes, there's also mm-hmm. a transition, I would say, working in, you know, a building, you know, a hospital setting or, or a doctor's office, and then really just becoming a road warrior with intermittent team meetings, correct? Absolutely. One of the biggest challenges we have in recruiting nurses who are used to working like in intensive care settings or in a very structured hospital setting is um, they are on the road, so they just have logistical challenges of going from place to place. The other part of that is they have to think on their feet. They can't always, you know, in a hospital, you're literally a phone call or just walking down the hall to find a medical resident or somebody who can assist, you know, answering questions. Um, So that's a challenging part of it. The other is um, you're in charge of your own schedule. So a hospice nurse could see anywhere from six patients a day, but they're in the middle of caring for one patient and all of a sudden there's some crisis that comes up somewhere else that they've got to deal with. Or it could be the family they're with has lots of questions and it's not like you schedule in an ICU where you're doing vital signs every 15 minutes. Each situation requires um, different amounts of time, and it's hard to anticipate. Or it could be that they had plans to visit five people, and one of the patients died last night, and they've got a new patient that they've got to meet for the first time. So it's that constant thinking on your feet. Mm -hmm. You have to be very, very pliable um, for sure. So when we get back from the break, what I would really love to dive into a little bit more is really the fact that the COVID-19 pandemic, from what I've seen, has really brought up a national discussion about death and dying. And perhaps, Mm -hmm. you know, this may be a time when a lot of nurses even more so are getting exposed to that and may think about perhaps transitioning to a career in hospice and end-of-life type nursing. Mm-hmm. We'll cover that with our guest, Mark Philbrick. He is the Director of Education at Transitions Life Care right after these messages. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. 60 minutes devoted to giving you all the information you need when caring for a loved one with Nicole Cleggett and Jason Kong. Welcome back to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. Jason Kong here with Nicole Cleggett on the line. We have Mark Philbrick, the Director of Education at Transitions Life Care. You can find more information about Transitions Life Care at transitionslifecare.org. And Nicole, uh, you know, we often talk about uh, the need and the, uh, I, it's difficult to talk about death and dying, mm-hmm. but um, I guess one of the, <laughs> the few bright sides of COVID-19 is that it gives us a really easy way to start those conversations. Yeah. I mean, I've been hearing more and more just general people talking about, you know, wow, you know, all the hospitals are talking about putting people on ventilators and needing more ventilators and 
what in the world is a ventilator and what does that mean? And if I got this virus, would I want to be on a ventilator? So it's really just almost normalizing some of that conversation that has been, frankly, quite taboo. Um, and so I think, you know, if, if anything, that's really given family members a door opener to get some insight into what a loved one may or may not want when it comes to uh, end-of-life care and end-of-life wishes. Would you agree that you've been sort of hearing more of those conversations, Mark? Yes, absolutely. There's um, a lot of fear, a lot of concern, and a lot of needed education about this whole topic. So I'm, I suspect, you know, especially in the areas where there are hot spots, and thankfully, you know, this area is not one of them, there have been a lot of nurses that have been exposed, or even nurses from this area deployed to areas where there are hot spots, to a lot more death and dying than, um, you know, they would have otherwise. And I think it's probably going to open up a lot of questions for folks as they're coming off of this time and sort of debriefing and going through just the thinking through versus the day in, day out mantra of just doing the, the hard work of, you know, what does this mean for me as a professional? What do I want to do with the future of my career? I know a lot of people, unfortunately and sadly, and even in this area because of the virus, you know, they can't have loved ones if they're in a hospital on a ventilator. So, so we're finding that, um, you know, people who would not normally have to literally be sitting there at the bedside are now doing that to really try to support those individuals who are experiencing some confusion uh, related to oxygen level changes and things of that nature. And so I think people are, just because of the virus, becoming exposed to what it might be like to support someone at end of life. Yes, definitely. Um, in the hospice arena, we have about 40% of the patients we care for are in skilled assisted living facilities or nursing homes. So we have staff on our hospice team that go into these nursing homes, many of which have uh, COVID positive patients. And virtually every patient we care for in hospice is already uh, physically compromised. So they're very high risk. Um, and uh, so our team is protecting themselves, protecting the patients, and protecting the families as they, they provide their care. Um, so I do think, especially I've seen and read hospice nurses and intensive care nurses who are very much struggling with um, the emotional impact of dealing with patients who are dying, especially since families are restricted from being present. And it does take an emotional toll and a lot of what we do with our hospice nurses and our training process is help them deal with their own feelings of death mm -hmm. and their own mortality and dealing with handling what grief and losses they've had in their own life so they are more prepared to process that in the lives of those they care for. Well, and frankly, you know, just in society as a whole right now, um, you know, I think what people are experiencing is what's known as cumulative grief, which is, you know, mm -hmm. we are all just, you know, there are th little things and they may seem 
like not a big deal. Why are you even complaining about it? But, you know, things like, you know, not being able to see your colleagues every day, losing a paycheck, perhaps you've lost a loved one during this time and you couldn't have a funeral the way you would normally have had. Children, having to support children who can't go to school, who want, wonder why they can't be with their friends, trying to explain a virus to a three-year-old, you know, not being able to visit a parent in a long-term care community. And so all of these little griefs and losses that we're experiencing don't have to be literal death and dying losses, but they're all building up for folks. And I think there's just a general sense of folks are really starting to get tired. They just, people just want to feel like there's something that they can count on that they have control over that feels normal in their lives. And so then put on top of that healthcare workers who are being faced with the virus day in and day out. I can only imagine uh, the types of supports that administration is having to provide for folks that are truly on the front lines of fighting this disease. That's a really good point. I think when most people think of grief, they think of those who've lost somebody close to them. But grief is a natural response to any type of loss. Mm -hmm. You know, loss of income, loss of relationships, loss, as you mentioned, of our what we think is a normal existence that can be turned upside down, uh, particularly in the situation we're in now. And that those losses and the grief that results from that cause both physical symptoms in people, um, emotional, spiritual sense of loss and disconnection. So it is really important that self-care be in a, a, a emphasized and we're doing that with our staff, um, sending out encouraging um, communications. Or our spiritual care counselors are sending out readings and poems and things that sort of keep us centered and um, focused on the bigger picture of what we're about and what we do. Um, and then really encouraging self-care, going out on walks, um, FaceTiming or Zoom meeting with colleagues and friends and family, all of those just keep us connected the best we can uh, during the challenges that we're facing right now. And trying, and trying to find some humor. I mean, there's so much going around that is so, so heavy. And it is heavy. I mean, my gosh, it feels like the weight of the world, truly. Um, but, you know, just trying to find, as Irma Bombeck would say, some of the, some bless in the mess. Um, and just, you know, just trying to find some of those small moments of joy, even if there's just one thing out of the day that you found simple joy. And I, last night, my daughter was we built a fire outside. She was begging to do this for weeks and finally got around to building a fire outside. She was just as happy as she could be. And she sat on my lap and she said, Mommy, I don't care. And she's seven. When I'm 13 years old, I'm still going to sit on your lap. And I don't care if everybody teases me because I'm always going to love you like this. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that is so sweet. I could just bottle up the joy. Meanwhile, I'm looking across the fire pit at my 13-year-old who thinks I'm the most unfair and like evil person in the world. So <laughs> I hope she keeps that light. But, you know, just, you know, even if you just had a really rough day and just trying to find some glimmer of uh, of something, you know, whether it was a, a text somebody sent you or a phone call, some sort of a connection, something beautiful you can, you can see outside in nature. I think those are all, you know, positive things that we can hold on to and realize that they're true and they're real. And yes, this world is flipped upside down, but there are still moments of joy in, in some of the very, very simple things in life, even the fact that we have breath. Absolutely. And uh, it your story just reminded me of what Mark Twain said. When he was 14, he was appalled at his father's ignorance. And when he turned 21, he was amazed at how much his father had learned in just seven years. 
That's awesome. I really do appreciate yeah, we do, that. Uh, we do try to share jokes and, and try to keep it light. I think a good one I heard the other day was that they're now going to require everybody wear masks inside their homes. And it's not to protect them from COVID, but from eating too much. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, Mark. I definitely love that. I love love the spirit in which you bring to everything that you do and all that you're doing behind the scenes, working in education at Transitions Life Care to keep everybody feeling uplifted. And, and hopefully we've inspired some people just to think a little bit differently about perhaps what they want to do and realize that Think about who's working today, who are known as the essential workers, because you high school seniors, those are the jobs you want to get. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mark Philbrick, Director of Education at Transitions Life Care. Thanks again for joining us this evening. It's my pleasure. You can find more information about the many services that Transitions Life Care provides by going online to transitionslifecare.org. Transitionslifecare.org. We're out of time for tonight. I want to thank our guests this evening. We just spoke with Mark Philbrick and also Madeline Ashley earlier in the program. If you missed that, head over to WPTF.com. Head over to the podcast section. There you can find Aging Matters and listen to this episode, as well as all of our past episodes of Aging Matters. On behalf of Nicole Cleggett, I'm Jason Kong, thanking you for listening to Aging Matters. Care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care, on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. Have a wonderful night. You've been listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. For more information, log on to transitionslifecare.org.